grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This past week, I learned about the existence of several rules that I hadn't heard before. These include the floss rule, the milk truck rule, the bed rule, and others. For many of you sitting in the pews today, these rules may just sound like gibberish. Uh, but for some of you, these may ring a bell. See, these rules are tips and tricks that help young students with dyslexia learn how to read. For instance, that, that bed rule. You know, the English alphabet wasn't designed uh, with dyslexic people in mind. And so many of the letters end up looking a lot like one another. Perhaps the worst are the lowercase b and d. They're just mirror images of one another. Well, if a young reader has learned the bed rule, then they can picture the word in their mind, bed, B-E-D. Then when they picture the letters, it even kind of looks like a bed with the post at the front and post at the end being the B and the D. And when, when a student knows this rule, they can look at the letters and think, does that look like the start of the bed or the end of the bed? And then they can distinguish between their lowercase b's and d's. Now for most people, all that extra thinking would be completely unnecessary. For most people, you can look at, uh, at reading, you can look at letters, and you can just read by second nature. But for those with disabilities and for the, the younger members of our congregation who are just learning how to read, they don't have that luxury. And, and it's harder, so it takes more time, more effort, and really just more thinking about what you're doing and why. And there, there are times in our faith where it can feel like it is second nature. When it feels like, like, like we just know what we're doing, when, when we've been in the church for a long time perhaps, and we don't even have to think about what the church means or what grace means. And it's not that our faith isn't important to us. It is. But we just don't need to stop and dissect it piece by piece. Instead, we are just living it day in, day out. But then there are other times when we don't have this luxury. When it is hard and painful just to imagine another day uh, having faith for the next day. Often it's the times of suffering. And we have to answer these questions of, is this all worth it? What am I actually doing in this world? And, and what am I here for? It's in these times where it's much more like the kids with dyslexia learning how to read. It takes more time, more effort, more thinking. The Apostle Paul was given lots of these moments. At every turn in his ministry, he was being thrown into jail or being threatened with death and with torture. And especially when he's writing this book of Colossians, he is in jail. Life was hard for him. He was in prison for the sake of the gospel, for his ministry of bringing the good news to the people of the world. He was put in prison. And so he has to think about what it is that he's doing, what he's been called to do, what the church actually is, and what God is doing in this world through him. In these verses from Colossians, we get Paul's reason for his ministry. We hear Paul say why it's worth continuing his ministry of the gospel even in these times of suffering. Although our English translations, thankfully, 
break this section up into multiple sentences. This is actually only one sentence in Greek. It is one long, rambly sentence with, with explanations and modifications tacked on the end. But the one sentence that Paul is centered on is simply this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Everything else in the reading is explaining what this means and why Paul is able to have this attitude even in suffering. And so Paul is facing this serious opposition and hardship. And Paul's reasons for continuing on are, are, are these three truths about God. Three things that God has done and was continuing to do. And three things that God is promising to do even today. And so today for us 21st century American Christians, although we don't often face the same sorts of hardships that Paul faced, let's lend an ear to him this morning. And let, let, let's hear what energized him for his ministry. And we'll see that God is still working in much the same way in his church today. So that's the important question for us this morning. What does Paul point to as his reason for continuing to preach the gospel even when he's persecuted? In the first place, Paul essentially says, what other choice do I have? See, when he describes his role in the church, Paul says, I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. The stewardship of God. The way Paul describes the work of God is like managing his household. That's where that word stewardship comes from. It's oikonomia, the oikos house nomia laws. So the management of God's house. And God has entrusted a portion of his house, a portion of, of the management to Paul. And with this simple phrase, Paul is pointing out something really important. This ministry is not his own. This occupation of apostle is less like something that Paul chose at a job fair and maybe more like me picking out chores to do that my mom laid out for me. Or maybe it's more like, like being a servant under a master who has given you a portion of his management. See, the church itself is not something that belongs to Paul. This household belongs only to God. And if God has chosen Paul to do the work of proclaiming the gospel, well, who is Paul to say no? What other choice does Paul have? This is such a simple thing, but so important for us Christians to understand. This church does not belong to any one person here at St. Luke's. It is not... The pastor's church. This church does not belong to the staff. It doesn't belong to the person who writes the biggest check or who devotes the most time in service and volunteering. This church is only God's. It is God's house, and he gives management over portions of it to different people at different times. And it's dangerous for us when we get this point backwards. If we begin to think that the church is ours to own, we can fall into these petty fights that come so naturally to us. I've been warned multiple times at seminary that the single room at a church that creates the most arguments is the church kitchen. See, there we have the arguments of 
whose cabinet space belongs to which, which group, whose pots and pans, who left all the dirty dishes in the sink. It was probably the youth group. <laughs> See, if the church belongs to us, then we find up ourselves having to have this need to defend what matters to us. But Paul points us to the greater truth, that the church is God's alone. He entrusts parts of it, of it to each one of us, and each one of us are servants that get to take on just a piece of that household management as we fight for what matters to God. So that's point one that Paul points to for his reason uh, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And here's his second point. Paul says that he is working to proclaim the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God to, uh, chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you. Paul is willing to serve without ceasing and through every hardship that awaits him because the church truly is God's body. It truly is Jesus' body. When the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus is truly present here in and among his people. This is what separates a sermon from a college lecture or a TED talk. This is what separates the church from any other social club in our community. Jesus has promised to be here. When we gather together and pray together, when we hear the word of God proclaimed, when we gather around the Lord's table for his supper, Jesus is really, truly here. And for Paul and for all of us, that's worth any amount of suffering. To meet our God and receive his forgiveness, what could be more important than that? Certainly any amount of suffering pales in comparison to that joy. And the way Paul talks about it, suffering is guaranteed. Right at the beginning of our reading this morning is this strange-sounding verse. In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Is something lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, certainly nothing is lacking in Christ's afflictions that he took on on the cross to save us. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. And throughout the scriptures, we hear that message again and again. But Paul isn't talking about completing Jesus' work on the cross. He's talking about receiving this same hate that Jesus received. The same afflictions that the world threw at Jesus. The world abused Jesus ridiculed him, and killed him. And years later, when, when Paul was preaching the same gospel, well, the world still had some more hate to give. There were still afflictions remaining in this world that the world wanted to wound the body of Christ. And so now, it's just Paul gets to, gets to feel the wounds. See, if the, if the church is really the body of Christ, that is a great thing. That means that Jesus is truly present through us. He is really at work through us. But also if the church is really the body of Christ, then the world is still seeking to wound us. The world is still trying to stop this message of salvation from reaching all people. But as we see from Paul's example, 
That's no reason to stop spreading the gospel. This reminds me of the story of the Hagia Sophia. In, in the 400s AD, there was this church called the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. And the descriptions of it that we have sound like the most beautiful church to ever exist. It was essentially a wonder of the ancient world. And led by their, their pastor, John Chrysostom, the church was thriving. They were gaining steam in the community enough that the emperor took notice. And he got jealous of, of seeing all the praise that was happening and being poured out of Jesus. And he wanted a piece of that. And so the emperor decided that this beautiful church wasn't really complete unless they had a statue of his empress in it. And there couldn't just be a statue. Well, he needed people there worshiping the statue with loud singing and with tambourines, especially on Sunday morning when all the worshipers were going to be gathering. And so the pastor, John Chrysostom, spoke out against this statue and against all the people who were there to worship her. In sermons and public addresses, he, 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 he spoke out against it, and the, the emperor exiled John Chrysostom. So that this beautiful church could be even more under the emperor's control. See, the emperor thought that this was just any old group of people. But he was wrong. The people who worshipped there at the Hagia Sophia... When the emperor came and put the, the statue there, when the emperor came and took their pastor away, they responded by burning their church to the ground. The emperor underestimated these people. He thought that they were simply people who loved to have this beautiful building, but the church actually believed in something. They actually believed that worship was to Christ alone and that that was more important than a building. They actually believed that Christ was present when they gathered together. Whether it was in a church that looked like a world wonder, or if they were gathering in the middle of the streets. No matter what, Jesus is truly present among the people of God. And he's here today too. Finally, this leads us into the third and final truth that Paul writes about in our reading for this morning. It's God's church it's Jesus who is made known through everything the church does. And it's also God who is working it through to the very end. At the end of this chapter of Colossians, Paul says this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is not a task that we are doing on our own. This is how God is working through us and how God will continue to work through us, especially when we go through the worst afflictions in the world. Especially when we experience the suffering that the world has saved up to deliver to the body of Christ. What keeps Paul going through everything is this fact. God is the one who is doing everything. He is the one who has called Paul into his own church. He is the one who comes to us in worship. And he is the one who will bring it all to completion even through suffering. And actually, if God is working through us always, in times of suffering, we, we, we don't have to run away. We don't have to flee and avoid discomfort and pain. But instead, we can endure it because it is God 
right there who is working through us. And who knows, maybe in our suffering, we'll find ourselves next to some people who are going through the exact same thing and yet don't have the hope that we have. There's maybe no better ministry that the church has than the, church, than the ministry that you can do to the person in the hospital bed next to you. Or to your coworker who is just as stressed out about everything going on as you are. Just as overworked as you are. Or to your friends and family members who are concerned about everything that is going on in our world. From inflation to Supreme Court decisions. And every moment, God is giving us chances. God is working through us. God is energizing us to continue the work that he began in Christ Jesus, and he will bring to completion in the day of our Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the peace which passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.